Hello, I'm Simon Haynes. Welcome to the third in our Ramsey Centre Distinguished Speaker Series for 2021. Our first two events this year have been conversations. So this is the first actual lecture. And I'm afraid we're still online only, but we're expecting that will change, at least for our domestic speakers, before too much longer. As for our international speakers, that may take a while yet, but as you can see from all three events so far, the online format has not stopped us from securing some truly world-class visitors. It may even have helped, since people of this calibre are much in demand and can't always travel all the way here. So perhaps after all, Zoom is a good antidote to the tyranny of distance that we know so much about in Australia. Now, both last time and this, our theme has been liberalism, such a critically important strand in modern Western civilization. And I think you'll agree that our two guests offer very different assessments of the condition of liberalism in our time and especially in the future. For our last speaker, it has probably run its course. For today's speaker, however, it continues to be the main source of our prosperity and our best hope for the future. I won't steal her thunder any more than that, but I will say that her argument is every bit as crystal clear and compelling as you might expect from her. She is Deirdre McCloskey, Distinguished Professor Emerita of Economics and History and Professor Emerita of English and Communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's the author of 20 books, hundreds of articles across a number of academic fields, perhaps best known for her magisterial bourgeois-era trilogy, published across 10 years from 2006 to 16. If you're not already familiar with its core thesis, you will be after this lecture. Professor McCloskey is also the author or co-author of such recent popular works as Why Liberalism Works and Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, published last year. She describes herself irresistibly as, and I'm quoting, a literary, quantitative, postmodern, free market, progressive Episcopalian, ex-Marxist, Midwestern woman from Boston who was once a man. And her autobiography, Crossing, a transgender memoir, has been through three editions in 20 years. She's an author and thinker of huge historical scope and range, and this is reflected in her fascinating, wide-ranging speech for us today, which she has entitled Liberalism, Not Investment or Exploitation or Christianity Made Us Rich. So here is Professor Deirdre McCloskey. Yes, I'm an economist and his historian, and I've come across in the last few years the answer to the central question, I think, in economics and in the history of the world for the last couple of centuries, and it's why are we so rich? I mean, after all, from 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 the caves on, the average human earned and spent and produced on the order of two or three dollars a day. You can take Australian dollars or American dollars and imagine trying to live on two or three dollars a day 
in either country or anywhere. Now, it isn't actually that hard to imagine because there are still places in the world in which the average is two or three dollars a day. You, you, you only have to go to um, uh, um, the uh, um, Central Africa to find people living on such amounts. It, you know, it, it means that you haven't got adequate food, you haven't got adequate clothing or housing, education, travel, of course. You haven't got a full human life. And that was the state for the last two or three hundred thousand years of humans in our aboriginal condition. And yet, in the last couple of centuries, let's take 1800 as a symbolic date, income per head in a place like Japan or, 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 or Sweden has increased, now hear this, by a factor of 30. Now that's, that's not inflation, that's not, uh, 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 it's got nothing to do with uh, the, the uh, uh, prices or something like that. It's the real ability to buy goods and services. And you only have to look. You only have to look around at your own uh, life now to see that you earn and spend vastly more than two or three dollars a day. In Australia now, income per head is on the order of a hundred and ten dollars a day. In the United States, it's on the order of $140 a day. And there are countries like Ireland or Norway where it's even higher. So there's this miraculous change. Now, of course, Australia, the United States, Canada, the UK, Holland in 1800 were world leaders in this income per head uh, uh, league table. But even then, they, the, the, um, the average American in 1800 might have been earning $6 a day. And as I just finished saying, now it's $140 a day. So there's this gigantic increase since the time of Adam Smith in income per head in the world. Now it's true, as I mentioned before, that there are still very poor countries. But what's remarkable about the last 30 or 40 years is that many of the very poorest countries China and India, to take a couple of very important examples, have also started to grow at fantastically 
fast rates. And this is for the poorest among their populations. Under the regime of Mao, the largest famine in world history occurred in absolute numbers of people affected. And now in China, there are no starving people. In India, as late as 1991, there were large parts of the population on the verge, on the verge of starvation. Now that's not true. India started growing fast after 1991, China after 1978, and around the globe, the share of those who are, are growing and are starting to approach um, the incomes of the uh, of the most well-off um, countries is growing and growing, and it's it's hard for people to to grasp this. It's hard for them even to believe that the situation in the world is not as it was, say, in nineteen as recently as nineteen sixty. In nineteen sixty, there were five five billion people on the planet and four of the five four of the five billion were in this this wretched state of poverty now with over seven billion people in the world there's still one one billion people of our fellow humans in this historically commonplace but increasingly rare condition in the modern world of extreme poverty. But that's one billion out of seven billion instead of four billion out of five. So it's an enormous change. It's an enormous change if you look in the very long run of a couple of centuries from 1800. And it's not true that growth has slowed down. So the question is why? Adam Smith, I always cross myself when I mention um, Adam Smith, wrote his great book on economics in 1776 on what he called the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. And since then, as this at first slow, but then gradually increasing and now astonishing increase in income per head by a factor of 30 in some countries, 20 in others, others 40 in others, that's 3,000% or 2,000% or 4,000%. Or, or While that's been going on from the left of politics and the right, Two great arguments have been made to explain this extraordinary increase. 
let me start, in fact, on the right. The argument by conservatives is that what made us rich is investment. In a way, that sounds obviously true. You look around at a place like Chad in, in, in Africa, and there's, there are no tall buildings, and very few people have automobiles, and people don't invest in their in their in their uh, in higher education, and so they're poor. They're down at two or three dollars a day, and you look around at. Australia, and you see tall buildings and uh, and highways and and so on and so forth, and it looks like, in the first glance, that it must be investment that made people rich. And indeed, even Adam Smith thought this was true. In his time, the late 18th century. Economic, his idea of excellent economic growth, lo looking at it from from uh, uh, Scotland, was Holland. He he hoped that 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 Scotland would attain the the prosperity that Holland at the time had, and his thought was that it would be through capital accumulation, as we say in economics, an increase in the number of roads and houses and, and machines and mines and so forth. Now, that's been the theme of what from the left is called bourgeois economics ever since Adam Smith, that it's the accumulation of capital, K we call it in economics, that, that explains why we're rich. It's it's embodied in the in the analytic idea in economics of the production function, but in any case, it sounds plausible enough. But there are deep problems with this argument. The first problem is economic. From this very economics that that developed after Adam Smith, it's that. Capital accumulation by itself, without new ideas for using the, the um, resources of all kinds, the capital and the labor and the land, uh, runs into sharply diminishing returns. Think of your own house. It would be nice to have another house identical to your own next door. You could have uh, parties there, um, um, store stuff. So you'd have two houses instead of one. But of course, the second house would not be as valuable to you as the first, that's fairly obvious. And carry it on, go to the third house. Now this, these are three houses, identical houses right next to each other. There's been no innovation in how they're used or what they're for. And obviously the third house would be practically valueless. You'd hardly ever go there. The fourth house and so on. Saddam Hussein, the once ruler of Iraq had seven palaces. Well, you know, 
what's the point? Seven palaces seems on on reaches sharply diminishing returns. So that's the economic problem. And you can be very mathematical about it. You can write down a marginal product of capital and show show it show it falling if there's no innovation. If there's no technological change, if there's no organizational change that makes for smarter smarter production. So that's the economic problem with the standard conservative explanation of all this, of this amazing change since 1800 and the continued um, change nowadays. But there's also a deep historical problem. And that is that investment, capital accumulation, is routine in human history. In the caves, the so-called Auschulian hand axes are found in archeological sites in bulk. The Great Wall of China was not a small investment project. Even larger was the Grand Canal in, in, in China, which up until the 19th century was the longest and largest canal in the world. Even in the European Middle Ages, an ordinary peasant would invest in the form of seed back into the ground each year, something on the order of one-fifth of his income. <laughs> one-fifth, a savings rate of 20%. So it's not the case that in, say, the 1700s, there was a big increase in the savings rate as the as the conservatives think about it, and that that caused modern economic growth. If modern economic growth was in the cards, that hand would have been played millennia ago. So there's an economic and historical problem with the claim from the right that it's accumulation. Now let's consider the argument that has been uh, uh, popular since Marx, um, that the that that the modern world of enormous increase in income was caused by exploit exploitation. We're hearing a great deal of this in the United States nowadays. Uh, the 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 sixteen nineteen movement is is arguing as abraham lincoln did in his second inaugural address in 1865 that the wealth of the united states comes from slavery that is from exploiting one group um, for the benefit of another in the case of the sort of classic industrial revolution in britain the claim from the left is that the workers were being exploited. This is what Marx himself said, that the surplus value was extracted from, from the workers, and then the, the, then the capitalists turned around and invested it. So you see there's a connection 
between the exploitation argument and the accumulation capital argument. But there are deep problems, uh, very serious problems of the same uh, uh, character in this in this left wing explanation. And it, the, the, the economic problem is fairly obvious. How do you get an increase in income of the whole society, including the poorest people among us, which has in fact happened in places like Australia or now India and, and, and China, from taking from one group and giving to another? How does that work? Suppose you had a, let's think of it, a base of 100, all right, for the, um, for the, for the average per person income in the society. And you, uh, <laughs> you extract, I don't know, a third of it from the poor and you give that money to the rich. How does that increase the income of the average income of the whole society. It makes no sense. It's it's a transfer from one group to, to another. And then I've I've already told you why the the accumulation of a fund from surplus value to invest doesn't work as an explainer of the extraordinary increase in national income per head. Of course, that doesn't mean that investment is bad, and it means it still means that exploitation is bad. It's claimed, for example, that Britain is rich because of, it, because of its exploitation of, uh, of India under imperialism. But if that were so, Britain would be richer than Austria, which didn't have overseas empires. If slavery were the cause of the higher high national income in the United States, then Canada would be poor because Canada didn't ever have um, um, slavery. You, you see that there's a there's an economic there's a problem of just economic uh, um, logic in the view from the left wing, and there's a problem of also of of the left wing view of a problem of historical comparison. And after all, exploitation has been a permanent feature of human society. Men exploit women, um, white people exploit black people, uh, Mongols exploit Chinese and Europeans. Everyone's exploiting everyone else. That doesn't make for enrichment. So there's a deep scientific problem here. The most important secular event, or I would say it's the second most important secular event in human history, is this astonishing great enrichment, as I call it, 
since 1800. The, the old phrase, the Industrial Revolution, is not adequate to the task of, of even describing this astonishing increase since 1800. Uh, the, 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 I would say that the other very important or even more important event is the invention of agriculture, which made urban life uh, uh, possible and with all the um, uh, with all the cultural um, improvements that come when humans are clustered to 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 together, one of the few places in the world in which uh, 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 writing was invented is Central America, the 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 uh, Mayans, and that's because they were able to they they stopped being hunter uh, gatherers and started being farmers. And that made urban life possible in a higher uh, culture. So those are the two. <clears throat> What's happened since 1800 and what happened with the invention of agriculture. And we can't, you know, it's fairly obvious how it worked with the invention of agriculture. It's still quite puzzling that agriculture was invented all over the place and not just as I was taught when I was young in the ancient Near East. But what is quite striking is that this event, which is happening around us right now, the great enrichment, hasn't been adequately explained by economists and historians. So what's my answer? Well, I argue in various books, a very heavy, big trilogy of a total of 1,700 pages. I go through all the other explanations, all the, I round up the usual suspects and find them to be inadequate to the task of explaining this great enrichment. And I ask myself, what could it be? Well, what's obvious, and here I don't get any disagreement from my colleagues in economics or economic history. It, it has to be technology broadly understood. Um, new ideas to express it in an even more expansive way. These can be ideas like, uh, well, the obvious old one is the steam engine, and from that the the railway or electricity and the and and computers that's all technological some of it depends on science but up until around 1900 most of the pieces of the great enrichment for so far as technology that kind of technology of concern didn't have much to do with science reinforced concrete for example such as you see behind me here in Chicago was not a scientific invention. You take a technology which the Romans and the Chinese had, and you add what had just been invented, inexpensive steel, and you get reinforced concrete 
and can build skyscrapers. So there, there, there are some up until 1900. So there are a few scientific advances that explain the change in technology, but it's mainly after 1900 and especially after the Second World War that science becomes really important in the economy. But there's also sheer organizational changes, smart ideas about how to do things that don't involve even much technology. Take containerization, which Australians know for sure is a really important way of cheapening ocean, uh, ocean transport. It was invented in 1956, uh, uh, was it, by a man named uh, Malcolm McLean, a trucking firm operator in North Carolina, who said to himself one day, ooh, let's see, <laughs> let's make standardized boxes, the corrugated on the side so they can be piled on top of each other so they're strong out of steel, this cheap steel we have, and let's put stuff in it and send it to China. And then the people in China can put stuff in it and send it to the United States. Super highways, as we call them in the United States, um, divided, limited access highways were invented in Germany in the 19, uh, 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 20s, and then implemented, alas, uh, under Hitler in the 1930s. So there are organizational changes, again, having not much to do with science. But then, then the, and, and if you start thinking about the, the uh, objects in your room, just look around you and, and imagine, did they exist? In, 19, uh, in 1800, or were they cheap in, 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 uh, in 1800? You know, um, food, for example. Food took easily 30 or 40% of the budget of the average uh, American in 1900, as late as 1900. Now, food, um, uh, not food bought in, uh, in, in a in fa fancy dining, but food at home takes a much, much smaller percentage. And that's partly that big trend of the falling importance of food in the expenditure of human beings comes from, of course, the enormous increase in the, in the, in the productivity of agriculture. So there are thousands, millions actually, of these improvements, of these smarter ways of doing things that have accumulated since 1800. Then the question becomes, in the, once you have that idea, and there's no way around it, neither uh, investment that is from the right wing or, or uh, exploitation from the left wing can, can explain this, it has to be an improvement in technology. Then, of course, the question is, why the new technology? What's going on here? 
how strange. Now, it's, 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 it's not the case that humans didn't innovate before. They did. But the progress of innovation was, shall we say, dignified and slow. The oil, wheat, and in um, oil, wheat, and wine economy of the uh, of the Eastern Mediterranean, which developed early in the first millennium BCE, raised incomes maybe by a factor of two, and then they were then Malthusian forces the increased number of children and surviving children that people had drove down. Again, we have this marginal product going down as, as, uh, as, the, mag as the numbers increase, um, drove incomes back to the two or three dollars a day. And that kept happening. That is the increase in, in human ingenuity was steady, but not fast enough to dramatically raise the condition of the average person in the world. A few kings and priests did very well, but not your ancestors and mine. So what's going on here? Why, why did this explosion, what my friend Matt Ridley calls ideas having sex, a somewhat startling image that, that, that starts out around 1800 and keeps getting more and more frenetic. How did that get going? Why did it take place? It wasn't investment. It wasn't exploitation. It was technology. But then why the technology? And the answer, I think, I, I've told you, I've hinted that it's not science. And I think that's true. I think that's right. My friend, un, 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 another dear friend of mine, the great economic historian Joel Mokir, argues that it's science. And I think Joel and I agree on lots of things, especially the importance of ideas in history. But I think he's wrong before, as I said, around 1900. All right, so why? I claim that the key is liberty. The, the key is the idea that's shockingly new in the 1700s, that all men and women, dear, are created equal and are endowed by their creator, creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That phrase, that famous phrase of 1776, was of course penned by a slave owner. But it was new. It was not new with him. It had become a, a commonplace, as in Adam Smith, um, among advanced intellectuals in Northwestern Europe in the 1700s, but it was new. It was the claim that the good society would be a society in which no one's a slave, 
it had been inconceivable for most people for millennia to imagine any other agricultural society except one in which there were lords, the landlords, and then there were the peasants, that's again your ancestors and mine, who did the work. And only in the in this uh, only in the 1700s did people like Voltaire and slightly before John uh, Locke, but then especially people like um, Hume and um, Adam Smith and Tom Paine and Mary with Wollstonecraft start to imagine a society in which everyone had equal permission. That's the key point. It's not so much equality of opportunity as it's normally expressed, but equality of permission. You were allowed, you were to be, I can't say you were allowed because this, this, this came to pass very slowly, but the idea of liberalism is to take away ancient hierarchies of permission and to let anyone who wants to, to have a go, to enter an occupation freely, to um, start a new shop freely, to move to another part of the country freely, to invest in your own education freely. All those things made people bold. I have a considerable amount of evidence that that did happen. And, and the boldness resulted in an enormous increase in invention. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that I'm thinking only of the sort of high level inventions. Edison inventing the electric light, by the way, lots of other people were trying at the time. It wasn't exactly a brilliant um, insight that he had. Lots of people had were trying to do that, but it's 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 not those fancy things. The invention of the of the computer or the automobile or something like that only. It's also the small scale having a go inventions. The invention that you decide. Um, that there ought to be another hairdressing salon in the neighborhood and you open it and you boldly attempt to make this, the hairdressing salon successful. And then sometimes you become a queen of a world chain of hairdressing salons. That's essentially what happened to uh, Walmart which started as one store in Arkansas and now has what, something like, I don't know, thousands and thousands of, of stores all over the place. So, but, but even the small things that a free human can do and is permitted to do, again, this idea of perm, perm, permission, the new permission, against ancient hierarchies makes people innovative, ordinary people. They move to a job in North Dakota 
to work on the oil wells courageously. The kind of enterprise that we call entrepreneurship is also small entrepreneurship or modest entrepreneurship of the sort that free people can do and slaves or serfs can't. So that's the variable that changed. That's the main thing that changed. Not new investments, not in not investments in canals, say in the in the seventeen hundreds or railways in the in the in the eighteen hundreds, not exploitation in the slave trade in the in the seventeen hundreds or exploitation of the industrial workers in the eighteen hundreds. No, 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 that's not it. It's innovation. It's human creativity unleashed by liberty. Then you can ask, and here I'll start to come to the end of this, you can ask, why Northwestern Europe? Why did this happen in the 1700s? Why did the idea of liberalism, um, equality of permission, therefore equality of humans. Why did that develop? And I argue that it was not something, how should we say, fundamentally European. It was not just white people. It's not because they were white people or because they were Christians. It's it's not this deep. How can I say this? It's not some something deeply special about the Europeans. It could have happened in China or South Asia or or parts of Africa or or the New World. It could have happened somewhere else, but it didn't. Now, why in Northwestern Europe? And the answer, I think, goes back to the series of upheavals in Northwestern Europe, in Europe generally, and especially in places like Holland and England, um, over the over the previous three centuries. The Protestant Reformation, not as the great sociologist and uh, economic historian Max Weber argued in 1905, not because of Calvinism, he was wrong about that, but because of a flattened church church governance in what's called the radical reformation. Extreme case in England are the, are, are the Quakers who don't even have a, a, a person who, who gives a sermon. They, they, they sit in a circle and when the Holy Spirit descends, someone speaks. So it's this, the, 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 that was the first of them, 1517 and Martin Luther. And then the Dutch revolt against Spain in the late um, 1500s, the, um, uh, the Civil War in England, in the 16, uh, uh, 16, uh, 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 1640s, 
the French, the, the American and the French Revolution in the late 1700s, all these by accident that could have gone the other way worked to make folks in Northwestern Europe confident of, how to put it, confident of themselves, more and more um, open to the notion that you're no better than I am. This is an idea that is more, is even more prominent in Australia, a country that I know fairly well than it is in my, my own country. This basic equality of permission was a fruit of accidental successes of revolts, revolutions, reformations in, in Europe. So, as I say, it could have gone the other way. Had the Spanish Armada been able to land in Holland and take the best army in Europe then to England and successfully invade England, England would not have become the uh, home of our, 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 our freedoms and our prosperity. Um, if Martin, Martin, Martin Luther hadn't, by happy accident, had the support of one of the electors of the empire, he would not have survived. If George III had been a more sensible person, the American Revolution might not have succeeded. So these were all chance events. There, there's no deep European reason for this, as we can easily see actually in the great successes nowadays of economic successes of places like China and India. So that's my claim. My claim is that the usual explanations of modern economic growth, as it's been called, the great enrichment are wrong. And the correct explanation is ideas. These ideas for technologies and reorganizations and the idea of liberalism that underlies the explosion of ideas. So I, I think I've, um, I'm, what shall I say? I'm, I'm presumptuous enough to think I've solved the basic question in economics and in modern history. Why are we so rich? We're rich because we're free. Well, perhaps you'll agree that now, perhaps more than at any time in the last 50 years, we need to think about the freedoms that we've come to take for granted. And Deirdre McCloskey has reminded us most eloquently of everything those freedoms have done for us, in fact, have done for the whole world. 
and of their roots, not in the Enlightenment, as is often argued, but in the Reformation. So on your behalf, let me offer our warmest thanks to Professor McCloskey for that extraordinary lecture and perhaps encourage you all to stay online and order the powerful trilogy of books it's based on. So that's all for now from us at the Ramsey Centre. I'm Simon Haynes. Please do join us again very soon.